Welcome to episode 131 of the Sentientism podcast, a podcast about what's real and who matters. The Sentientism worldview answers those two deep questions by committing to using evidence and reason and having compassion for all sentient beings. In this episode, I speak with Sandra Namoto. Sandra describes herself as a vegan foodie, content writer and editor and wife on a mission to empower others to make small, meaningful decisions and actions that will help make the world a better place. She's a co-host of Veg Network in Canada, a place where plant-based and vegan companies connect and collaborate, and she's the author of the recent book, Vegan Marketing Success Stories. I'd love to know what you think of this episode and the 130 others. Don't forget to work through our back catalogue if you've found us recently. Every person who reviews and rates or shares our podcast with a friend helps us nudge more people towards more compassionate, rational thinking. You can find out more about sentientism at sentientism.info, where you can sign up for email updates or just search for sentientism on your favorite social media platform. You'll be made very welcome in all of our global online communities. They're open to anyone interested in these sorts of ideas, not just sentientists. Thanks for listening as ever. Good morning, Sandra. How are you? I'm doing well. Thank you. How are you? Yeah, great, great. Well, thank you so much for taking the time to join this series of sentientist conversations. And we've talked briefly before. It's the first time we've had a proper conversation. Um, but this is a series of conversations about what I think of as the two biggest and most important philosophical questions. What's real and how should we understand reality? Um, but also what and who matters? Questions of ethics and how far should our compassion extend? And I have an obvious bias because I'm trying to popularize and develop this really simple pluralistic worldview called sentientism, which suggests that when it comes to thinking about what's real, we should take a naturalistic approach using evidence and reason. And when it comes to our ethical scope and who gets to matter, that should be all sentient beings, any being that has the capacity to suffer, to flourish, to have experiences. But I'm talking in these conversations to people who agree and disagree with either or both of those aspects of sentientism. So it'll be fascinating to understand your personal philosophical journey and uh, how you put that into practice. But before we get on to those big questions, how would you best introduce yourself and your work? Well, yes, I'm Sandra Nomoto. Um, I'm 40 years old, identify as a Filipina-Canadian introvert, wife, aunt, uh, woman of color. Um, and then professionally, I've, yeah, I feel like I've been, a, I, I came out of the womb as a writer. <laughs> I think that's the the one gift of literacy my mom uh, really gave me at a young age. Um, and I, yeah, I, I really took that uh, into my career. So um, from AP English in high school to a, a degree in uh, English literature and film studies, um, did not pick up a camera. So not that, that not those kinds of film studies. Um, yeah. Uh, yeah, writing essays. Uh, and then uh, right after school, I landed my first internship at a public relations firm, knew nothing about public relations, but uh, that ended up being my career for um, for over 10 years. Um, yeah, because after I left that first company, uh, I was inspired to start my own business. Um, so I ran uh, an agency for over 10 years. Um, after closing that, did not think I wanted to stay in marketing, uh, wanted a good 10 foot pole between me and the practice. Yeah. Um, but after explore, doing some career exploration, you know, I was thinking about becoming a hypnotherapist, a genealogist at one point. Um, yeah, I sat down to meditate and meditate is meditation is, is a big uh, part of my spiritual practice now. Um, and just this booming voice kind of came to me at the end of 2019 and said, you're vegan now and you'll always be writing. So put those two things together. And uh, so at the start of 2020, 
2020, I started a new business as a solo um, content writer and editor as the content doctor. Um, and that's the business that I run today. And um, yeah, I've written two books. The second uh, has recently come out called Vegan Marketing Success Stories um, and uh, serving businesses as well as uh, authors who are self-publishing. Um, so those are two my uh, two of my audiences. And so, um, yes, in addition to the, the content writing and editing for, for businesses, I also have a, a number of services that I offer to authors like me who self-publish books. Yeah, that's brilliant. Thank you. And I think the themes of sort of marketing and messaging and uh, high quality writing will come back into our final question when we think about how we can sort of nudge humanity into more positive directions too. So it'd be great to come back to that. Thank you. So let's start with the first of these crazily big philosophical questions. And you've hinted at how you might answer this question already. Um, uh, But many of my guests tell this story uh, by starting out explaining how they grew up, whether that was in maybe a more supernatural, religious, mystical sort of context, or one that was more naturalistic or scientifically minded or atheist or agnostic originally, and how that side of their thinking shifted over time, if it has. So yeah, you can wind the clock back as far as you like and be fascinating to know your story on epistemology, I guess. Yes. Uh, so I grew up uh, in a very Catholic household. Um uh, I would say around the same time, my mom taught my siblings and I to read and write. This is this is pre-kindergarten. Um, she also taught us the prayers. So Catholicism is, uh, I believe, the biggest religion practiced in the Philippines, and it's probably one of the the, the, the countries, at least in Asia, that that uh, yeah, where that religion is is particularly dominant, and that is due to the the colonization of of Spain. Um, yeah. Uh, you know, centuries ago. So, um, yeah, so that was my upbringing even. And then, and then I went through 13 years of, of Catholic school. So kindergarten right through to, to grade 12. And so religion, um, that particular religion has been um, a, a big part of my early life. And then leaving school was an interesting time because I still considered myself, um, you know, a pretty devout Catholic. Um, even when I left Vancouver to go on exchange um, to to Toronto for a year, I there was a, a Catholic church ten minutes from my from where I was staying, and so I would go every Sunday. Um, and then it wasn't until I came back to Vancouver where you know I went to the same parish that, like I said, I've been you know, been to growing up as a child. Um, one, one of the, I think the first sermon that, that, uh, I went to when I came back, um, was about fundraising. And this is not, this is actually common, uh, at the time, you know, the, the church was, you know, it needed renovations. It needed a huge, it, it needed to be rebuilt. Yeah. And so that wasn't unusual because, um, yeah, the, the priest would often, you know, forgo the the typical sermon to to talk about how important the fundraising is um so that you know i i consider those kind of a waste of my hour because <laughs> yeah. i don't learn anything you know new about uh the scripture um and i think the next either the next time or the next few times i came back um yeah there was a sermon specifically about um uh, how we don't really welcome gay people into our uh, <laughs> in our practice, and yeah. um, that was something new that I hadn't um, experienced before. And I think it was just a product of the times, like you know, them trying to keep up, and we need to we need to start talking about this. Um, and and, and how, how explicit was that? Was it the sort of coded, subtle language hints, very and so subtle, on? or was yeah. it really? 
straight no, down the line. Very subtle, just... very vague, a lot of circular talk. Yeah. Like not even, not even really um yeah, outright talking about who we're talking about. But I'm, you know, we're all smart enough. Yeah, the messages <laughs> at least this are coming through. Audience, um, uh, yeah, to know to know what they're talking about. And at the time, you know, two of my best friends had just come out as gay, um, and so that was very close to me. And it had never occurred to me that you know the church, even though I knew this as an adult, uh, you know, their beliefs are not, at least most sects of Christianity are not welcoming to, um, to, yeah, to queer identifying people. Um, so that just turned me off. Like that was the last, you know, sermon that I've, that are, uh, intentional church service that I have, uh, yeah, that I had gone to, of course, gone to weddings and stuff like that. But, um, but yeah, that, that just sort of changed my whole um, spiritual direction, I would say. Um, and that, yeah, and that, and, and that's quite a common story. So, uh, some of my guests are still religious now, um, but most of them have left an established religion, and then gone some different path. Mine is a sort of boring naturalistic atheist, but others have found different routes as well. But um, the, the thing you mentioned there, that sort of ethical challenge, has been quite a common theme where. You know, people will go along with the beliefs and they'll say, okay, there is a God and there's a heaven and a hell and there's this and that. And you sort of just assume that stuff is correct. Um, I never did believe in the heaven and hell. I I will have to say that. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, Um, I mean, yeah, I, I... I always uh, knew that I didn't believe everything the Bible said, you know, like things like heaven and hell, I I never took literally, I always thought, you know, these are metaphors for where we might end up when we die. And and the whole point of, yeah, uh, following this religion is to be a good person. And that's, that's the one thing that has always stuck with me is that, is that, um, that's what we're all here for. Um, And yeah, and I do believe in an afterlife. Um, but yeah, in terms of those very linear, straightforward beliefs, like, yeah, that that was never really my style to be clear. Yeah. And I'm interested in where you went next, because for some people, they hit something like that, uh, you know, homophobic ethical thing, or it might be a racist thing or a sexist thing or a transphobic thing or uh, anti-Semitism or, you know, bigotry against apostates or people who have other worldviews. What, you know, there's unfortunately quite a portfolio you can select from, Um that don't run through all religions, but there seemed to be something problematic in almost every established religion. Um, so when they hit that, some people will use that as the trigger to reject the entire enterprise and just say, look, I'm out, right? This just doesn't make sense to me because the ethics are broken. So I think the whole thing is broken and they might go from a, you know, established religion to uh, just not believing in the supernatural world at all. Other people will say, what's happened here? There is there is something in Catholicism and Christianity or Islam or something else or whichever the religion they come up in, which is at its core really about a universal compassion and caring and, you know, and the golden rule and all that stuff, right? And that's the real yes. core. All these problematic things are just stuff that powerful men have sort of unfortunately added in over the centuries to yeah. break it. So they will then still st- say, I'm still a Catholic, I'm still a Christian, or I'm still a Muslim. But they will explicitly carve out, cherry pick, and reject the problematic ethics, and you can see that in a very positive context. Because in a way, that's the pressure that makes some of these religious institutions haltingly and painfully modernise a little bit over time, as they're sort of drawn towards a more, I think, a more secular, more compassionate ethic. Uh, so people will stick with it 
but then just say, but not that bit, not that bit. You know, I don't believe in the hell piece because how could torturing people for eternity be compassionate? Yep. <laughs> and and I'm certainly rejecting the homophobia and I'm rejecting the traditional female roles and I'm rejecting whatever it is. Did you reject the whole of Catholicism at that point? And then where did you go on to next? Pretty much. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Probably just like, I'm for, done with this. Yeah. Yeah. Of course. I, I, I still have loved ones who, who are devout and, and yeah. they go and I'm sure, you know, it's influenced them in a positive way. It, in fact, they, they say so. Um, and yeah. And they've, they've asked me, you know, um, if you don't jive with this particular priest or parish, why don't you find another one yeah. is yeah. what they say. Right. And it's because, uh, uh, yeah, I've learned that there's a huge problem with the whole institution. And if you're not fixing what's wrong at the top, it, it just all trickles down. Um, so, yeah, yeah and, and I couldn't articulate that probably until a few years ago. But um, I would say for a good decade, I was probably just, yeah, just living my life, you know. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Uh, great. I don't have to go to church on Sundays. Um, but yeah, it wasn't until... Um, I started meeting intuitives. So this is around the time I started my business. And um, as a part of networking, you know, I came upon people who were spiritually minded, but not religious or yeah. like me had come from a Catholic background and left it. Um, and this idea of, um, yeah, intuitives and being and people being able to read you and know things about you that um they couldn't possibly. <laughs> so, um, so that's what just, yeah, just started opening my mind to these other, yeah, to just other ideas. And, um, yeah, I would say that's uh, intuition has become, um, yeah, quite a big part of my life now, um, as well as the, the idea of connecting to my past ancestors, um, again, not in a religious sense, but I do feel, um, yeah, that I have this strong sense, uh, sense of connection with them and there are some events that have happened in my life that um yeah or I or I feel like they're they're giving me signs they're giving me signs that that yeah. you know even though they've crossed the other side like they're still here and watching over us and and are around in some some way so that's yeah so that's how to how yeah my my line of thinking have, has sort of developed yeah over the thank years. you that's fascinating and, and I'd like to dig into those two things but one thing before we move away from the Catholicism idea. Um, you mentioned the fact that in the Philippines, the prevalence of Catholicism is really due to colonialism, ultimately. And you can see that in lots of different places around the world. The dominant religion is there because it was frankly imposed by colonizers. Um, yeah. And I sometimes wonder, given the right, rightful pushback and challenge on colonial ideas, how the colonial religions seem to be sort of escaping the pushback to some degree um, in that mm. quite often the very populations that are have rejected and walked away from and are challenging the history of colonialism and the damage it's done still by and large or very strongly seem to hold on to the religion that was imposed on them by the colonizers. I don't know if that's just an observation, but I'd be interested in whether you have a perspective on that from a sort of context of the Philippines and friends and family yeah, and how people think yeah, about it i i i yeah i have to say i mean i i haven't been to the philippines since i was two uh you know yeah. something i'd love to do in, in the next few years and and yeah i don't feel very connected to the country i i don't know yeah just i i don't consume enough media to know what's going on over there and so i i 
I'm sure there is some sort of a pushback. Um, I just, yeah, I just don't know enough about it. What I do know is that um, the Filipinas, uh, Filipinx is across the diaspora. So those of us who have either, who have immigrated or grown up in places like North America or Europe, um, we've, we've started to, uh, at the very least, have an interest in pre-colonial history and started to try and perpetuate those cultures. So for example, tattooing was a very common practice uh, before uh, the Spanish came. Everybody was tattooed, men, women. Um, It was just part of the culture. And uh, now that we know this and that information has has started to proliferate thanks to the internet, um, it's not taboo anymore or it's not a stigma. It it doesn't mean you're an evil person to get a tattoo or to get you know, your body covered. It's actually um, a part of our reclamation process and decolonial, yeah, decolonizing process. And so it's, yeah. it's exciting to see people like me and and the younger folks interested in in the history and the culture and, and, and actively bringing that back into their lives. So, so I see that happening certainly in the diaspora. I don't know how much um, of it is. I mean, I do know there are tattoo artists in the Philippines. So, yeah. so it is, it is a thing to some extent, but um but yeah, as much as it is pushing back against, uh, I guess, the dominant religion or, or cultural forces that, you know, have been around for hundreds of years, I yeah, I'm not too aware of that. Yeah, yeah, thank you. Um, and it's been interesting because there's been at least a couple of my guests who, for for them, their journey away from religion did link up with this challenging of colonialism colonialization as well, and and they yeah. followed a similar journey to you, and that they went from an established religion to something that was not religious but spiritual and they felt in a sense that that was more aligned with the pre-colonial you know ways of thinking and belief systems that were around yeah. in you know the places where their diaspora came from than than the colonial impos- imposition of you know catholicism or uh, whatever the variety might have been so yeah it's an interesting dynamic so so let's come back to the um you talked about this idea of intuitives and ancestors and belief in an afterlife um and as I've said, I'm not sort of quite boring straight down on the line, sort of scientific, naturalistic, atheistic. You know, I'm sceptical of many of these things. But at the same time, I think there's there's some areas of potential overlap as well. And I think of intuition as um, a really important way of thinking where, you know, there's things going on in our brain we're not necessarily consciously aware of, but we may have picked up. So there could be certain types of cognition that's going on that we're not consciously aware yeah. of, or we might perceive things that we didn't explicitly think of and i think of those types of things as being a valuable part valuable part of our intuitive thinking and in the same way i might think about the value of my own ancestors but i think of it in a very sort of naturalistic way and that there are memories and there are echoes and there are you know there's obviously the biological inheritance that i take from them and so on but it i get the sense from you that it's beyond that it is something that is more um supernatural there is something much more real about those things um and that i would assume links to your belief in an afterlife as well so can you describe to me whether those things are sort of stitched together and what do you think they actually are to the extent it's possible to describe them yeah i think there's different levels to intuition and what and how it serves us um so i think there's that um yeah i mean at a basic level there's that gut feeling and um that's something for a few years I had downplayed because I, um, in 2013, I joined a self-development program, which 
four years later was determined to be quite a dangerous cult and the leader of which oh, really? is now serving <laughs> serving prison time. So um Nexium is that organization. And oh, wow. I never went, yeah. yeah. So and I never went to the to the point where I got deep into the organization and 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 really was, you know, mentally affected by by um more the more nefarious things that were going on. Yeah. Um my studies were very much at a service level. Um and I I I did gain some great things from what I learned in that program. But one of the modules that they presented um, was about data. And, and the fact that um, you sh- uh, yeah, I'm going to paraphrase here, but um, the data that you can see, experience, touch, um, like, that is what you should base your belief on. Intuition was very much downplayed. And, and um, it it communicated as something that could actually um, lead you astray from the person that you uh, want to be. Um, a lot of a lot of their teachings was sort of like, uh, yeah, if it if it hurts, if it feels painful, move toward it because that's how you get over it and you become you know a better person, etc. It's interesting um, because because yeah. for many for many sort of cult or cultish groups they tend to be much more pro-intuition and much more against sort of data and evidence and so on. So it's quite interesting that they sort of spin that the other way around and then still come up with a conclusion you should, you know, run into pain, which is... (laughs) Yeah, Yeah, I mean, yeah, uh, uh, that was an interesting time because I I feel like I was really... um, exploring my own belief system. And I didn't, of course, I, uh, I took what I could from the program. Right. Um, but yeah, for, for those few, yeah, for that brief time, I was like, oh, okay, well let's, yeah, let's ignore intuition. Let's try doing that at least. (laughs) And, uh, yeah. And I, I found, um, even before taking that program, like intuition has been, yeah, just, just a huge part of my, how I make decisions. That's yeah. what I want to say. Um, because whenever I've ignored it, you know, I've, I, my brain comes up with this idea. Why don't you try this? And I was like, no, like a few years later, the, I keep, the idea comes back to me even stronger. And I get more, even more signs in terms of the direction that like how to actually execute. <laughs> so, so I feel like um, on one sense that, that yeah, it, it could be just be a gut feeling. It should just be my brain, you know, ready yeah. for the idea at, the right yeah. time <laughs> when I am. Um, yeah. And then I guess to link it to um, more of my spiritual beliefs, um, it's, yeah, I, I mean, I guess it's, it's when I meditate, I get, and it, of course, this is not every time, but I think when I'm in a deep enough state where um, my thoughts are not dominating, um, yeah. that's sort of when I get these other unexpected ideas that yeah, that, that I just, uh, um, yeah, just wouldn't have consciously thought though that starts to trickle in. And I experienced that same thing the night, um, my grandfather died, my paternal grandfather, he was, he was a quite a big presence in my family. And, um, yeah, that night, that evening I sat down to meditate and he just gave me such a clear image. Um, and he was a kind of guy that he did not uh, he spoke very straightforwardly. He did not like speaking in metaphors. Um, yeah. And and it was very telling of his personality. So he was just like, here's where I am now. And don't worry. <laughs> yeah. Um, I got, yeah, I got that clear image. And that just, yeah, just kind of gave me that sense of, okay, like he's, he's in this other place and he's doing great. 
and and uh, and watching over us. That's another thing. He was yeah. a pilot. He was an air, airline pilot when he when he lived. And so him in in a plane was was that image that I got and watching over us. He was oh, also wow. yeah. A, yeah. an aerial photographer <laughs> from the plane. So, yeah. So, yeah, you can't get any clearer than that. And then um, the other sort of ancestral experience uh, um, was actually more more physical. Um, so three years ago, I uh, visited Montreal for a cousin's wedding. And um, uh, back in 2006, I had a an older cousin who had passed away. And so she um, uh, lived in Montreal. And uh, so my my husband and I were walking down, you know, one of these main streets. And I saw these lights um, down on uh, Rue Saint Denis, Saint Denis Street, um, and I went, yeah, let's 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 go over and check things out over here. And I didn't, I I could, I didn't remember from the last time I was in Montreal that this is a, this is quite a popular street. So so yeah, we were just checking things out, and then I came upon the exact restaurant that my cousin and I, that I believe my cousin and I, uh, or my cousin had taken me to the last time I had visited with her when she was living in Montreal. And I just, yeah. And I had my husband take a picture of me there and I went, this is, this was not a coincidence. This was her just welcoming me back into the city. Yeah. Um, so that's, so that's guided so, you there. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And, and that wasn't even, I wouldn't even call that intuition. It was more, it was more like, yeah, we're exploring the city. Let's check this out. And, but the sign was just, I, I could have walked right by that restaurant and not even known that was it. But, but because it was, yeah, just the colors were very clear. Um, yeah. I just, I just feel like she, she had meant for me to be there and recognize that memory and, and that, and that she's still like she she seems yeah she has a very big spiritual presence in my life because um uh yeah she was quite young when she passed away yeah thank you and how do you think of these things in relation to i guess the more natural world if you like so i guess we've got you know the stuff we're used to that when you break it down is molecules and atoms and quarks and maybe some weird quantum field stuff so there's the things that are described by physics and you know material objects and the interaction between them and energy and all that sort of stuff um how do you think of these phenomena do you think of them as just a completely different type of stuff in some different realm and how do they interact or, or, do, or is it not something you can no, I, I I appreciate that you brought in the science because from the little that I know of quantum physics, this is all very possible. Because if we think, you know, of that atom and the fact that most most of the things around each atom is is just energy, um, oh. then if you think about that, then nothing ever really dies, right? I mean, the body dies, but the the spirit, the energy is going somewhere. Or maybe nowhere, <laughs> you yeah. know, like it's just sticking around. That's that's why we have ghosts. That's, that's interesting. Like, so, so that works. That's how it works into my belief. I I I I, I try and take that science, and and work it in with with yeah. my beliefs. That's interesting. So you don't see it as a completely separate realm. You you see these Absolutely things as part not. of our natural world, and and ultimately, if we understood the physics well enough, we might be able to see and understand and explore this stuff and and examine it in different ways. Yeah, that's fascinating. Yeah, and I I even think about you know they're brilliant quantum physicists out there studying like things like the big bang or like the earliest atoms you know and and that's my definition of god yeah like the how i think of god is is the creator so the 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 thing that existed before everything existed 
And it just, it exploded. And uh, because there was this potential of what I believe is love, um, it exploded, you know, and, and we all come from this start. I, I like to call it stardust just because it sounds cool. Yeah. <laughs> stardust from that original Big Bang. And so we're all part of this, this creative force. Um, and then to bring it back to intuition, you know, I think um, everybody, uh, you know, in at least humans have this sense of intuition that we came, you know, from this original energy source. And if we can tap more into that source, the more it benefits us. That's, that's how I sort of believe. Um, But there, I think there are other people who have sort of this extra level sense, like where they can sense, um, you know, beings that have passed, you know, others might have more of a connection to nature. They intuit nature, others, animals. Um, I think we're all sort of gifted, you know, um, maybe just at a gut level, um, but others are more Olympian, you know, level yeah. um, intuitives. Particular talent, tapping into that stuff. So, um, and you talked about the phenomena of, you know, ancestors, the afterlife intuitives, and, um, and but your concept of God was more of a sort of origin of the universe and the sort of broadly defined physics and stuff that originated it. That's does what it you, is now, yeah. Does your, yeah, does your worldview still include that? God having, you know, a personality, if you like, or being an active presence in the world in the same way as a Catholic might think of a a God, or is your sense of a God a much more sort of amorphous, well, in a way, the universe is God, and the personalities and the agents in your worldview are both living humans and your ancestors and so, okay, I guess that is too long a question. The short, short, short question is, do you think of God as being a personality, a, a sort of beyond natural personality that persists in the world? Yeah, that's a good question. I'm, I mean, I also like to refer to it as universe as well. Yeah. Um. So I guess I believe both, you know, because if God was the only thing that existed <laughs> in the beginning, I don't think they had a personality, you know, we don't even have a language yeah. around this, right? Yeah. Um, but as as the universe has evolved and continues to evolve, I think um God has just made made its way <laughs> into everything. Um yeah, I, I yeah. So yeah. I that's how I would explain it. Yeah, no, that's fascinating. Thank you. Thank you. So one of the things that I find really interesting in this journey from you know, sort of traditional religion to more spiritual, but not religious, if you want to use that term very broadly is it as we come on to answer, ask this next question about ethics it it strikes me that if we do mitigate some of the ethical risks of traditional religions because with a traditional religion you normally have you know some form of book with rules that were written a long time ago by powerful men uh, which don't fit the modern day at all we've talked about some of those problems yeah. uh, you also have this sense that ultimately what matters isn't just compassion and love it's actually obedience to the deity so so the reason why you know we're compassionate is because god commands us to be compassionate and to love each other but ultimately if god tells us to do something wrong we should still do that because it's actually about obedience and submission and doing what you're told so there's there's those senses sometimes that come through in traditional religions and the, you know one of the classic stories is that of abraham being commanded to kill his child by god mm-hmm. and, and the message from that was if God tells you to do something that is deeply uncompassionate, you do it, right? Because God's the boss. And ultimately, worshipping God and following God is what matters even more than compassion to our fellow sentient beings. So mm-hmm. it feels to me like if when you move away from a religion that has that sort of 
clear personal deity with a list of rules and you go to something that's more amorphously spiritual but not religious you lose some of that ethical risk because you you open up space for just a more universal compassion this sense of love flowing through things a sense of interconnectedness um so i think the risk level drops if you like and i think you, you sort of talked to some of that but at the same time there are people who are in that spiritual but not religious space who have gone from that sort of warm, compassionate, we are all one, we're all connected, into some much darker ethical places mm. where um, they will tell a story that sounds very much like yours, but instead of taking that into a place of compassion and connection, will take that into a place where they end up you know, selling scam supplements or crystals or um, yeah. taking advantage of gullible people or, you know, hence your experience with Nexium, taking people into sort of coercive cult-like situations and so on. So I don't expect you to be able to answer this question, but do you have a sense of how we can put safeguards, make sure people don't fall down that path? If they're committed to a sort of spiritual way of thinking, how can we make sure those ethical guardrails are still there, that they don't end up in the next version of Nexium or... I think we're still figuring that out because yeah. as the internet has opened up this opportunity to share ideas, there are obviously people out there who maybe even unintentionally are doing things, as you said, selling, you know, selling uh, things that, that don't actually work or, you know, not scientifically proven. Yeah. Um, but yeah, there's, there's nobody around telling you, Hey, like this is actually a scam or this, you know, the leader of this is actually doing criminal activity. And and so it's on each of us to really put on. And this is something that I've really been thinking about in the last few years, critical thinking caps, yeah. especially with the area of the era of COVID oh, yeah. and really having to, for ourselves, um, yeah, seek out information, credibility of that information and discern for ourselves, what is, um what is real (laughs) yeah um and uh yeah and then having to act on that and so yeah I can I'm I'm what five years out of Nexium now and so I have the the ability to look back and say yep that's how I fell into it and and now I know some of the red flags so that I don't you know join a, a similar organization um but yeah, I think I think we're still figuring that out for sure. Yeah, I agree. Let me give you another podcast recommendation, which is called is called Conspirituality. Oh um, yes, I've heard of it. Have you heard of it? Yeah, and they're great yeah. because and the reason those guys I think do the job so well is because they grew up in these worlds, right? They they were invested in the yoga world, the spiritual world, the wellness world, and I think they have a rich appreciation for the value that many people get from all of these different ways of thinking, spiritual and otherwise. Um, but at the same time, they, they've got a level of expertise around spotting those red flags and those and those problems. And I think that's an you know a really impressive resource for people who are drawn to these ways of thinking to you know just keep their eyes and ears open and put their critical thinking cap on and realize when something's going a little bit dark. So yeah, it's fascinating. But I find that a great resource. So yeah. Great. Yeah. I'm gonna start listening to it now. Yeah, give it a go. Cool. Well, that's been brilliant. Thank you. And we've already started to sort of queue up the next big question, which is what matters so for people who grown up in a strictly or in a more established religious worldview the idea of ethics is sort of obvious because it normally comes as part of the package you know the bible has the ten commandments and you know do what god says and so on so that's fine um whether people have followed a sort of naturalistic path like me or a sort of atheistic path or a more spiritual path, the, the question opens up, okay, so what is your ethics based on now? Um, you know, what do good and bad and right and wrong even mean? And you've hinted at some of that already because you talked about love and 
a sense of connection and so on. But how would you describe, I guess, the foundation of your ethics are now in your worldview? Yeah, I think it's as simple as 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 be a good person as as much as you can yeah, in yeah. this in the world that we live in, where we're we're challenged on a daily basis to to just be consumers. I think that's our big challenge today. Um, is yeah, I think it's important to to care for everyone as as much as as you can. And then of course, you know, I'm vegan. Um, that now extends to animals and and. It didn't before. Like I, I honestly did not care very much for animals, um, and I, you know, I don't own any. I don't own it, or not that we all, not that any of us own any animals. But I don't have any animals living in my home. I just, yeah, I don't have that kind of like innate connection to them. But I do know, um, yeah, from all the documentaries that I've seen, that we're not treating them very well during, you know, the lives that they live uh, until, yeah, until we make them food, and so. Um, that has definitely uh, extended to our treatment of animals, and then also the natural world. I mean, we're we're depleting um, our Earth, uh, you know, more than she can withstand. So um, I think that yeah, that extends to our treatment of of our home as well. Yeah, thank you. And that's the second part of this question: is you know, we talk about what matters and what to right and wrong and good and bad even mean, and being good and caring for others. I think is something that almost everybody would agree with but the critical question then is okay well who do we care for and how far does our compassion go and you've talked already about that um journey of extending that beyond humans into thinking about non-human animals and even beyond that too um and it sounds like your journey is quite interesting because most of the conversations i've had with people um there's a variety of different routes but most of them have had something to do with companion animals or experience with animals personally or an affinity with non-human animals that was you know part of the early trigger but it doesn't sound like that was your story so much so it would be interesting to understand how you came on to this question of extending your compassion beyond humans to non-humans and what were the steps and how difficult was that for you um i'm big on documentaries uh, as i mentioned right at the top uh, <laughs> degree in film studies, film studies and, that, yeah. and that just means i enjoy you know watching movies and and then thinking about them. So, yeah. um, yeah, I'm big on documentaries. And so earthlings watching earthlings oh, yeah. at the end of 2007, just hit me real hard. Um, yeah. but, but even more so, uh, the Q and a at the end, um, where somebody asked, there was a person from the Vancouver humane society who was there to answer questions. And somebody in the audience said, what is one thing we can all do to help these animals? And she said, stop eating meat. That's like, it was just as, as simple as that. And I knew, she was right. <laughs> I did not know how I would go about becoming vegan, but um, I, I, I feel like, uh, yeah, as soon as the idea of becoming vegan hit my brain and just combined with, I guess, my belief system at that, at that, at that point in my life, I was just like, this is it. This is, this is how I start living that, that ethical lifestyle and becoming the good person that that I want to be um so so that was really the catalyst um yeah. and of course I've, I've so since quite a, seen quite a key uh, a key moment there that just flicked a switch in your mind and you're on that track yeah yeah having seen footage of of something that I had never seen before and it's so, it's so simple it's, yeah. it's how our food is made um but but if if yeah if you can emotionally relate to that then i think um that can be quite powerful and it was for me and 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 several documentaries since have also contributed to that 
yeah, to my, to my path. I mean, it took me 11 years. It did not take me, you know, a, a short amount of time, but yeah. because of the information that I kept adding to my arsenal and remembering, um, why it's important to be vegan that, um, yeah, th- that sort of has, has helped me. Yeah. And it's interesting. You went back to it and you, you, you kept exploring and pushing it because I guess the classic response to even seeing a film like that is to, put it out of your head completely, desperately try not to think about the topic ever again, pretend that maybe it was just, you know, a couple of bad apple farms and, you know, instead I'll believe the humane washing myth of happy cows and pigs and so on. So there's so many, you know, human psychological tricks we can use to desperately try and avoid something that is so obvious. But it sounds like you 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 stayed on that path at least. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I also just wanted to to drop in and say, uh, I think within 10 minutes of the the documentary, there were some, uh, it was a screening at the University of British Columbia. So there were some big, like, I don't know if they were basketball or football players, but they were wearing the university jackets and walked right out of the theater 10 minutes in. Like they were not, you know, they were like, yeah. we're out. <laughs> and and I was like, well, if, if they're not, if they don't have the guts to sit, you know, for the next hour and see this, I'm going to sit my ass down and, and, and yeah, and witness it for myself. And that, and that really hit me. Yeah. Yeah. <clears throat> and and you talked about it then being a long journey. And I, mine was even longer than that. I went vegetarian in my mid twenties and vegan, you know, probably another 20 years after that. So it's been a long, painful journey, which hopefully helps me be compassionate when I'm talking to other people who haven't gone on that journey yet, because I can remember who I was then. I wasn't a bad person really, but, you know, just using that psychological toolkit to avoid the obvious. Um, But did you find that a, a difficult journey? And I mean that, I guess, both, you know, psychologically thinking these things through emotionally, practically, but also socially as well. Did you feel social pressure not to head down that path towards giving up animal products? Um, not really. I mean, mm. uh, yeah, most of my loved ones uh, are not, uh, yeah, are not even plant forward, I would say. Yeah. <laughs> and so, so there have been many times where, yeah, we've gotten together as a family and I just, you know, I just bring what I can eat. That's my contribution. Um, and uh, yeah, and they've not, yeah, they've never asked me, you know, or expressed curiosity for the lifestyle. And, and I want to respect that they're, you know, that's the journey they're on. Um, but yeah, I've never, never experienced, uh, any sort of pressure to go back. Um, uh, although I can remember (laughs) just at a summer picnic recently, um, the entire table was filled with meat. And I think one of my husband's friends was like, come over to the dark side. I'm like, no, it should, yeah. it's, it's you yeah. come over to this. Yeah. Side. Don't you know what that um, stuff is? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, but, um, yeah. And then practically I would say, um, yeah, I just, I just had to learn how to cook, cook yeah. better. <laughs> that, that was really the challenge that I, that I got over. Cause when I, um, yeah, I decided to, to, or I was at the point where I was ready to cut meat out. Uh, I was still eating some seafood, but, um, but yeah, I just started buying like veggie pizzas and, and fish sticks and, and sticking them in the, in the yeah. oven. And my, my husband or who was my boyfriend at the time, um, you know, had some experience at restaurants and went, you know, this is not healthy. You should not yeah. be eating all this processed food. Um, so I really had to learn how to, um, yeah, uh, just cook with veggies more. Yeah. That's great. Thank you. So you talked a little bit about um, the environment and concern for the you know, the planet as a whole as well, because that's one um, criticism sometimes of the stance I'm putting forward, which is this sentiocentric stance. So there's anthropocentrism where we just 
really care about humans. There's sentiocentrism where we care about all of the sentient beings in the wild, in our farms, in our homes, including humans, you know, any being that can suffer too. But some people challenge that and say, look, you're not going far enough. We need to think about non-sentient living things like plants. We need to think about the ecosystems and um, and so on too. And I do care about all of those things richly and deeply because they're so important for the experiences of all the sentient beings. But I don't care about a rock or a river or even a tree in its own right. I care about it because of the impact on the sentient beings. How do right. you think about that sort of concern for the wider environment? Do you see it in a similar sort of way to me that it's because of the sentient beings? Or do you think those things warrant moral consideration in their own right? Um, yeah, I think, I think we have a similar level of thinking. Um, I did not... Uh, consider even the, you know, having the ability to communicate with nature until I read a book a few years ago, um, called behaving as if the God in all life mattered by Michelle S. Wright, um, was recommended by a a shaman who who I met, uh, it was part of a, a, a reading circle. And, um, in that book, the author talks about how she, without like zero gardening skills, um, listened listened to the uh, vegetables that were telling her how they would like to be grown. And she had, she created an entire garden and this is a real garden. It's called Paralandra center for nature, nature research. Um, I'm sure it's, you know, she's got a team of people handling it now, but um, yeah, in the book, she talks about how, you know, she, she intuited from, from these, these vegetables, um, yeah, sort of this circular pattern, not not the rows that we we now think of modern vegetable farming. It was yeah, it was in this very specific um, pattern, and and she even has a story in in that book about uh, communicating with an inanimate object, which which to me was like whoa, okay, now we're talking yeah. about like like objects, right? Um, but yeah, yeah I mean, and, I, lo- and, and, I love my coffee mug, but <laughs> you're not going to be talking to it. Yeah. Well, <laughs> you're like this coffee was cold. Not often. Yeah. <laughs> um, but yeah, just so, so that book just really kind of opened me up to like, oh, like what if that, you know, um, if, if that's possible and I'm not saying it is, um, then, then we have a huge responsibility to, to this home that we have. Um, yeah, and I've I've since read. I was just going to say, um, you know, there have been studies where you know if you play a certain type of music while you're growing a plant, you know, it 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 actually grows more than it would have, and and sort of these scientific studies with plants, and and that sort of added to this idea that yes, they 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 do actually sense this this energy from us, um, or or that we're giving off to them, um, and that can affect how they grow. So yeah, oh, fascinating. And do you get the impression that she? believes that you know for example a carrot growing in the ground is conscious and does that therefore mean it can suffer and does that mean we're doing a moral wrong by cutting into vegetables or fruits or plants i don't think she says that outright but i from what you know the the having read the book i think that's what she's intuiting but i i don't think uh, the carrot would say you are harming me or you're killing me by eating me. I, because I think that's its purpose. Its purpose right. is to feed us, it, it, to give us that energy. So yeah. I think there's, yeah. a, there's a cyclical. Oh, that's interesting. Kind of I mean, to it. And the, the, the worry in my mind is that some people say that about farmed animals too. And, and I'm just worried that us humans are quite good at convincing ourselves of, you know, stories that justify the yeah. things we want to do. And I'm not, 
personally, I'm not worried about the carrot at all because I'm highly confident it's not sentient. It just doesn't have the capacity to do the things that your and my brain can do. Um, but you know, that's an interesting that's an interesting angle and an interesting perspective that she was intuiting and connecting with you know, the fruit and vegetables that were explaining to her how best to grow them so that she could consume them. So yeah, fascinating. Yeah. So let's move on from um, those crazily big uh, philosophical questions, because I think we've had a, you've told us a great, fascinating story about, you know, your journey, thinking about what's real and what, and then who matters in our ethics too. Um, And the themes there are clear and come through quite powerfully in this sense of compassion and caring in a very generous way, I think it seems like it's at the centre of it for you. Um, and the final question is, how can we make a better future? Um, so for some guests, that's a sort of utopian vision of where we might be able to get to. Um, for others, it's a bit more of a dystopian worry about where we might be heading. Other people like to talk about sort of more pragmatic changes and programmes of things that we can do to try and make a better world. And it would be fascinating to understand how... Um, you think the role of content and writing, but also marketing and messaging can play into this story as well. Because I get this sense from all of the conversations I've had that most of the problems we're facing come down really to human psychology and social norms. Technically, they're Mm. quite easy to fix. And sometimes the philosophy is pretty obvious. Um, You know, things like working to end animal agriculture is just such an obvious win-win-win for humans, for non-human animals, for the environment, you know, the answer is in a sense quite easy it's just a practical matter of working through the transition but it seems to be these deeply entrenched social norms that are blocking us so i'm that's partly why i'm fascinated by the ideas of messaging and marketing and you know and how content can nudge us humans in better directions so yeah i should ask turn that into a question but yeah how do you think we can make a better future I think, yeah, I think you've said it there. It's it's the consideration of of all sentient beings and the environment. If you don't believe that's uh, that's sentient, and and a vegan lifestyle, you know, on a personal level, can get can get us closer to that, or as close as you know, vegan as you can get. Um, I do believe in personal impact. I think we all have our little um, circles of influence, and that's how we create, um, yeah, a bigger ripple effect. Um, I think paying attention to just basic human rights, uh, you know, clean water access, uh, even in the West here in North America, there are certain communities that still don't have clean water access. And I think we just got to get people on that, that baseline, you know, receiving human rights, education, healthcare, including mental health, um, because uh, a lot of the problems, uh, I mean, here in Vancouver, we have one of the worst postal codes in, in North America for unhoused people and addiction. So yeah. um, that mental health care can really, um, you know, we have safe injection sites, which is a great band-aid solution, but um, that's not solving the or preventing um, people from becoming addicted in the first in the first place. So I believe mental health has a, a real part to play there. But I think that's that's one of the interesting things about the sort of sentientist way of thinking, because in a way it, it picks up all of the sort of broadly compassionate humanistic ethics we might have about trying to help people have happier, more flourishing lives and mitigating human suffering. And it just says we need to do all of that good stuff and people can debate over what the best approaches are, but it just extends that out, say, and we need to consider, you know, non-human sentient beings in the same light as we think about farming and wild animals and so on as well. So it sort of just layers on an extra, extra challenge for us really. And quite often 
doing so actually helps us with many of the human challenges too. Um, so, yeah, you know, absolutely. there's, again, there's double, double reasons to do these things. So um, your recent, most recent book is focused on this idea of marketing and messaging, particularly for vegan businesses. Um, and that's one of the things I'd really love to get your insights on, because when we're dealing with a topic that is powerfully and deeply ethical at its core um you know when i look at what animal agriculture does i think it's an egregious ethical horror um there seems to sometimes be this challenge of strategy around messaging because on the one hand there's you know when i get snarky on twitter and i'm the classic preachy righteous vegan um where you're using that ethical drive and you're challenging people's consistency and you're pointing out the incoherence of their arguments and you're pointing out that being anti-vegan is pro-animal suffering and you know and it feels good to do that right and there is an ethical clarity there and the reason you're righteous is because you are actually right so there's that sort of ethical drive but there's also the recognition that while that might work with some people, it doesn't work with many of them and quite often puts them off and puts them into a sort of polarised group-based way of thinking that makes them just reject it and kick it out. So then there's this other alternative, which is much more focused on let's be effective, let's help people find a way that is less threatening, let's give people options, let's help people find their way on a journey. Um, But sometimes those seem like two different alternatives because the ethical approach feels good but seems ineffective and the effective approach might be more effective, but feels like you've lost some ethical clarity Mm -hmm. in your, you know, are we really, you know, are we really fighting for this in the way we should? So how do you think about that challenge in a marketing and messaging context? What, how do you advise people who are working on both causes, but also promoting businesses that are trying to do good in the world to navigate that? Yeah, I think you've pointed out really succinctly, um, the ethical argument is definitely important. And there's, there's definitely a place for it. Um, That's how it got me into this lifestyle, right? Um, At the same time, you have to think about where people are at. And if people are not at the point where they're they're ready to give up meat, um, then it's the, then it's the argument of well, try this beyond burger yeah. <laughs> instead, right? It tastes yeah. it tastes the exact same way. It's just made of plants, and I think that's what the role of marketing is. You know, I've uh, I, I know that there is the um, there's the bad side to marketing in media where you are deceiving. Um, there's certainly yeah. that, um, but one of the reasons why I wrote this book is because um, a marketing book specifically for the vegan industry does not exist. Um, And so I thought there was a huge opportunity to speak, number one, specifically to the folks in this industry and who are trying to grow their own vegan businesses, because I think business is a huge part of how we um, have a better future. Um, We need to have these alternatives if people are going to give up meat um, and seafood. Um, But it's also for the average, like I, yeah, I, I specifically did not want to put in why go vegan in yeah. this book. It's, it's, yeah. it's, it's definitely a practical, uh, marketing book, business book, because if the, if, if your everyday person just happens to find it somewhere and looks at it and, th- and thinks, wow, like, you know, there are these types of businesses that don't even, con- you know, they don't have animals in their business and, and, and here are all the things that they can do for us. Um, that, will hopefully have <laughs> um, yeah. effect effect that other side. And I think... I, I, um, I love that way of doing it. It's almost like a, an assumption that this is completely normal and 
yes. eventually the whole world will be. So why not get on board, yes. right? It's you know, you, you, I'm, I'm not even going to try and persuade you because it's so obvious. It's, <laughs> yeah, of course we'd have vegan yeah. business marketing books. Yeah, yeah. And so I guess my short answer is is there's there's room for all of that messaging, and it's to each business to uh, find out for itself what is going to resonate most powerfully with its audience at the time. Because some folks may have, yeah, may have a bigger vegan audience. Others are speaking completely to omnivores. And so I think you have to, yeah, you have to figure out what that line is for you in terms of how, yeah, how much you're going to talk about ethics in your messaging. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you. And what, what would you say to someone who's skeptical of marketing, I guess the consumer economy, even capitalism, so, because there are many people who say, look, capitalism has exploitation built into the heart of it. And we can't fix these ethical problems in that system. And often marketing is co-opted to sort of ethics wash and greenwash rather than to, you know, just inform people about good products. How, how do you respond to that sort of cynicism about um, the consumer route to Positive change. I mean, I, I agree. I absolutely agree with that. But going back to what we talked about earlier with, you know, persuasion of your personal um, belief system, I mean, you've got to put on that critical thinking cap. If yeah. if a major brand is putting a green logo, you know, is that, a, is that an actual certification? Um, because, yeah, there are no regulations for even if you put vegan on a product, that doesn't mean it's vegan. They're, they're just making a claim, uh, a marketing claim, and you have to, you know, look at the ingredient list, uh, even go so as far as to ask the company. Um, because for some people, it's it's life or death. Some people have very serious allergies. And if they don't know a certain ingredient is yeah. in the product, they could die. So um, yeah, it's it's really on the consumer to be smart about that. Um, and and I know we're coming up against huge juggernauts with with yeah. money and who can who can make those claims and will never um face legal uh repercussions for that. But um but yeah, again, that's where our personal impact comes in. And you just have to be that discerning consumer um, to know. Yeah, yeah, to know right from wrong. Yeah, thank you. And th there are enormous pressures on people who are doing marketing, of course, commercial pressures and so on. Um, do you think it is possible to do marketing with integrity despite those pressures and challenges? Yeah, I think so. Yeah. Um, in my previous business, when I ran my PR agency, um, in sort of the the latter half of of that time, I really wanted to focus on working with clients who were socially and environmentally responsible. And so yeah. I I certified as a B Corp. I ran in that circle, you know, one percent for the planet. And I was yeah trying to network and and have and yeah definitely attend events with with these folks in mind and so i i know um that yeah there are great folks running businesses you know look at patagonia yeah. um that are that yeah that do believe in and are actually creating this positive impact um i think that a lot of them could stand to um learn a little bit about veganism and about animal impact because there are some great companies. I mean, Patagonia is an example. They're still using wool and, yeah. um, you know, certain animal products in, in their, in their apparel line. So um, I think that conversation could be talked about more in those circles, but, yeah. but yes, there certainly is this um, community of, of businesses that I think are trying at least trying to, to move more in that direction. Yeah, I agree. And I think I, I understand some of the skepticism, the cynicism about, I guess, capital capitalist modes of, organization and corporations and so on and you can see some much of the damage that's been done and and much of the you know sort of broken marketing that um <laughs> some of these companies put out too so i can see that 
Um, and there's also this school of thought that's been around for a long while in thinking about companies and capitalism that ultimately companies shouldn't necessarily be ethical. They should just think about profits in the bottom line. That's their role. And, you know, next then consumers and governments who sort of plug the ethics in. And I've never really understood that way of thinking because to my mind, a company is just another way for, you know, human beings to collaborate, to do some stuff. And those human beings have values and ethics. So why, you know, of course, a company might, you know, reflect the ethics of its customers because it wants to sell money, you know, wants to sell products and services. But why can't that company itself have its own values? Because the human beings that run it and staff it and govern it and even on its board and are its shareholders, they have values too, right? So why shouldn't they be reflected through this corporate mode of cooperation and organization? Um, And I think we're, you know, it's a difficult journey, but you're seeing more and more companies play that through. And a cynic yeah. would say, that's just another clever marketing message because they want to look a certain way. But I think there's some genuine stuff going on as well. And you can see yes. you know, employees and shareholders and, and managers and leaders of organizations actually implementing their ethics into their professional lives as well as their own personal lives. So. Yeah, and I I think it's due in part to this new generation that's growing up. Um, they say it's millennial generation. I'm a millennial, and I I don't know. I I see a lot of claims about <laughs> out there about what they're saying about us, but um, I do think, yeah, as you've said, that values are playing are starting to play a bigger part yeah. in in terms of how we work because it makes sense. We're spending a good majority of our week. Um, working for somebody else. So, (laughs) so, so we need to be considered. And so simple things like putting a salary range on a job description or saying, you know, um, you know, we're open to, to um, all types of genders and um, you know, how accessible they are. And um, yeah, even just the transparency around job descriptions today, I think is, is improving. Whereas um, yeah. Yeah. It, yeah. it was not, not definitely not that way. We don't, uh, we don't just have values and we don't just have values on the weekends. Right. So, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Cool. Well, that's been an absolutely fascinating um, journey through your personal philosophical story and your thoughts about how to make a better future too. Is there anything else you'd like to add into the conversation before we wrap up? And also how can people find you by your book, uh, learn more about your thinking and your work? No, I just want to thank you for having this podcast. It's been a fascinating conversation. Um, um, one of the most engaged I've ever had, that's for sure. And uh, and I think you uh, you have a yeah, just a huge impact. And and thank you for the work that you're doing. Thank and you. uh, yeah, people can find me um, just with my name, sandranamoto.com uh, is my website. Same thing on social media. And um, yeah, more information on my book uh, you can find on my website as well. Yeah, that's brilliant. And it's Vegan Marketing Success Stories is the title. That's yeah. right. Yeah. Brilliant. Well, thank you again. It's been a genuine pleasure talking to you. Please do stay in touch. And thank you for being a guest on Sentientist Conversations. Will do. You're welcome. Take care, Sandra. Thanks for listening. You're helping to normalize rational, compassionate thinking. Don't forget to subscribe, leave us some stars or a review. You can visit sentientism.info to find out more and you'd be very welcome in any of our online community groups. The biggest is on Facebook. If you like what we're doing, why not tell your friends about us?